Greetings, friends, who one day, if you're lucky, will be fossils. This is Michael Garfield reporting to you from the frothy interzone of art, science, and philosophy, Reconnaissance for Renaissance, with a special little bonus episode. If you've been keeping up with the show, you know I just pressed the Nitro Booster button on the publication schedule, and I'm working on getting all these talks and interviews that were recorded last year out as quickly as possible. So a little experiment. I'm going to spend twice as much time on this show for the next couple months. And hopefully you like that. And it works out for everybody. I talk enough on this show as it is. So for the most part, I've tried to limit the amount of my own public talks that I put out through this platform. But this is an especially fun and juicy one, though. It's a feature-length retelling of a much shorter talk that I gave in the Commonwealth Bank of Australia Innovation Lab, the most subversive and provocative presentation I could have given to the most professional corporate audience I have ever been lucky enough to speak in front of. But this recording is of my talk at Palenque Norte, which is a psychedelic speaker series co-founded by Terence McKenna back in the 1990s that lives on at Burning Man every year. Reminding me of that great Hunter S. Thompson quote, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. And I think this talk gets at the heart of what it means to be pro these days. If by pro you mean successfully navigating an increasingly psychedelic landscape of living technologies and programmed flesh of autonomous corporations running wild on the internet and human brains linked across wireless networks. Yes, indeed, the workplace is only getting stranger, which I think ought to be evident from the raw and noisy field recording of this talk at Burning Man. You get a real sense for just how cacophonously creative it is out there. Anyway, this is a lot of ideas really fast. I hope you like it. If you have any comments or questions after listening, feel free to join the Facebook discussion group and weigh in there or email me at futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And I think I'm also going to start doing an occasional listeners letters section for this show, which should be fun. So thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show on Patreon. It is still my greatest source of income which remains a daily test of my faith in the value of this work and the promise of the creative lifestyle. And it's awesome to have that kind of direct and intimate creator-audience relationship with the people who resonate with these ideas. Thanks also to everyone who's been leaving these five-star reviews for the show on iTunes. It's hugely helpful. I greatly appreciate it. Same goes for everyone who's just been sharing this show with your friends. Personal recommendations are still the greatest currency in the land, and it warms my heart every time I see future fossils tagged in some comment thread about what cool podcast to listen to next. So I love you all. Thank you so much for listening, and enjoy this talk on how to raise the living technologies of our vertiginous future with love, care, and wisdom. 
um, the talk that I pitched Frank for today was called Tech Ethics as Psychedelic Parenting. So this will be, I, I, I think of these themes as like a jazz standard, you know, like you're working from a fake book and then you riff out of the fake book, you know, you, you, you like freestyle. So the first time I did this talk, it was a five minute presentation for an Ignite Freelance Conference in Austin, Texas, where I had 20 slides and 15 seconds per slide to talk about whatever I wanted. And I figured most people I, were gonna do something kind of straight. So I was like, all right, well how can I, how can I appeal to the curiosity of like closet tripper freelance Austin tech people? And the title Tech Ethics as Psychedelic Parenting was intended to stir things up. It was sensationalist on purpose. And then I took the same presentation and uh, I gave it through a weird series of coincidences. I ended up somehow burrowing into the innovation lab at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, which is the largest bank in Australia and processes 40% of their transactions. Uh, because I met one of their guys, Andrew Despy, at Rainbow Serpent Festival. We were both speaking on artificial intelligence and we hit it off. I love the, the Australian tradition of like taking the piss out of each other and we like totally heckled each other through our talks and developed a really solid respect and, and so I had the opportunity to come and give this talk to a bunch of young, intelligent, creative people that are working within a very confusing and kind of, uh, I won't say malevolent, but they're working in this weird sense for, but also in opposition to the structure that is supporting them. And uh, that's just sort of framing this. So we're gonna go without the slides this time because I kinda wanna take it in a different direction. But the basic thesis of this talk is two points. One, that the internet and in general telecommunication technologies I see as, and this, is, this will be no surprise to any of you here, that they are, are sort of a nervous system that is growing on the planet and wiring together human societies. And not just the societies, but the cultures, the ideas, they're creating avenues through which these ideas can be remixed. And in so doing, they are creating this networked identity that is not bound to bloodline or to geography and that the primary mode of organization of modern human society is uh, noetic, which is to say that we're now uh, organizing and aligning primarily along the like states of consciousness rather than nations or families and that you know it's your religion or like your social network or your you know which drugs you take you know or your you know political philosophy and that these because this has moved from this sort of more simple and concrete inside outside we are over here and they are over there and into this folded system where self and other have been folded and folded and folded and folded and the closer we look the more folds we find and you know you get to that 
that Dustin Hoffman in I Heart Huckabee's point where you're like, you can't really tell where we st one person starts and the other stops. And each of us is the intersection of all of these different things from the world kind of like wrapping into each other. That the internet is functioning as a kind of psychedelic. And it is transitioning us from like, from one mode of identity construction to a new mode of identity construction in which we identify as planetary citizens in like a mundane sense, but in a kind of more uh, cosmic or spiritual sense. We literally experience our senses reaching out beyond the envelope of our bodies as we understood them and are starting to feel and experience things from all around the world and like out into space and you know that now it's now like i was talking to these uh this finnish team of scientists and artists that are working on the cosmic egg installation out in the deep playa and they were saying yeah it's it's extraordinary how many of us are obsessed with the latest trump tweets in Finland and not like what's going on immediately around us, that we're all sort of in the same soup now, but there's all these different layers that are like the different ages of life history on this planet and human identity. And it's mixing in a way that I think can be understood as or, or framed metaphorically as a collective psychedelic experience that is occurring for the planet rather than for individual people and is occurring uh, over historical time rather than over the the half-life of LSD as it like you know moves through the, the body and so because we are contained within this this growing planet brain that is waking up the way that children actually children that you know have a, a different pattern of brain activity that's a lot more like tripping and so in a way I think that what you know what we're really dealing with is this child like uh, Alex Gray talks about the, the cosmic Christ is the, you know, the second coming is the planet, the entire planet, like all of us are awakening as a single entity that nonetheless, because of the complexity of the, the ecosystem of culture now, or the, the ecology of minds, is pr providing new opportunities for uh, hyper-individuation even as it collects us. So that was a Pierre Théodicien thing. He said hyper-collectivization leads to hyper-personalization. That was very clear out of Burning Man. So it's like when you're, when you're sort of supported within the new body of this thing, rather than acting as an individual, that we are sort of free to be more ourselves rather than to conform to the orthodox rules and regulations and social codes and mores of a particular tradition which is kept in order to maintain itself against invaders or whatever. So that's part one of this thing, which is that these telecommunication technologies, which historically we know to be heavily influenced and inspired by the psychedelic experience, there's the famous Steve Jobs confession that LSD was a formative experience for him in the foundation of Apple computers and the the uh, you know Carrie Mullis, the the chemist whose discovery of the polymerase chain reaction, which was the how we learned to synthesize DNA in the laboratory, and is the foundation of all of genetic engineering, says that that came to him under the influence of psychedelics, and Ralph Abraham, the chaos theorist, 
you know, whose work is you know fundamental in our mathematical understanding of all of this. He and his buddies were uh, tripping DMT in large volumes in the 1960s in Santa Cruz, like way before anybody even knew what this was. Uh, so it, you hear this all over the place, and like now, now it's sort of the cat's out of the bag, and you know Forbes and the New Yorker and all these people are reporting on the the trip, the popularity of microdosing among Silicon Valley programmers, and the, it's it's very hard to historically separate uh, or repress the relationship between the cathedral brain that we're building on this planet right now and that phenomenon being a consequence of the psychedelic experience and the way that the psychedelic experience presents us with a new construction of self in which the inner and the outer are, are folded together, what Richard Doyle calls the egodelic experience because he says the way we talk about these things heavily determines the way that we experience the trip. And so he suggests that perhaps better than psychedelic with its loaded cultural connotations, that ecodelic is actually more accurate to an age where people are realizing that they are extensions of the biosphere through ayahuasca and that kind of thing. So, and it, you, you look back even further on that, and the relationship between psychedelics and human social organization and human language and the syntax of human beings in society and the syntax of words and human communication are themselves seemingly, and the, the case is stronger and stronger all the time, that, that these things actually emerged from the trans-species relationship of plant and animal, and that you know, by emptying ourselves and allowing an agency of non-human intelligence to enter and act through us, that we became, and this is Richard Doyle's thesis in Dar his book Darwin's Pharmacy, that we basically were sort of required to come up with language, human language, as a way of communicating these transcendental experiences that we were having with plant medicines dating like back hundreds of thousands of years possibly, and that uh, the complexity of these experiences caused us to reach beyond ourselves and constantly reach for a way to express these powerful and transformative states to the people that we care about, to the, the other members of our tribal community. So by taking the, the plant medicines into ourselves, we have sort of fused with them into a symbiotic relationship where our human consciousness became much more synesthetic and densely interconnected, and our sense of identity became tribal and, and social and more densely interconnected. And it's a ratcheting process. The more we persist in this, the longer that this continues, the horizon of our ineffable continues to stretch on beyond us. And so we, we keep reaching for this thing that's keep, that continues to exceed our, our grasp. And so the bandwidth of our communication technologies, we're constantly seeking to open this bandwidth and to say more and to communicate more. And like, it's very clear now that, you know, even syntactic language and, and speech and 
film and music and all of these things are insufficient in and of themselves to communicate the richness of these experiences. And so, you know, we came up with things like theater and then, and then opera and then, you know, more, more recently, virtual reality is sort of performing the same function by webbing, uh, there's a phrase called endosymbiosis, where like a creature becomes a piece of a bigger creature and lives within it and, and becomes an organ within the body of this thing. And so like all of our, our media are becoming endosymbiotically bound within this new language that is just now beginning to take shape, which is a language much closer to the direct transmission of a full sensory experience and a mental experience than anything we've approached so far. And I, I think that actually we're, we're coming up on just a couple, it was like a year or two ago, they wired rats together and taught one rat to run a maze and they templated the neural network learning of that rat through this wireless connection across the planet. I think it was like Japan and North Carolina or something. And, and the other rat learned to run this maze from a wireless brain implant from the other rat. And so, and then like more recently, we've, with, with uh, brain implants in humans, we've managed to induce experience, sensory experiences that you're not actually having, that someone else is having, where you like, you shine a light in someone's eye and the other person's visual cortex registers light and that person experiences light. And so the, the language is now starting to, again, there's a new, a new fold where we are, we're folding together into a sort of collective minds as individuals where, like for example, DARPA is working on linking the minds of soldiers together so that even if you're like out of the line of sight of the other members of your battalion, that you know when someone is under fire or you know when they hear you know, a helicopter passing. And so using basically these uh, group minds in this setting. Of course, it's not, just, it's not just military deployment of this stuff. It's also people coming together in clandestine psychedelic experiments and forming group minds in a way that has actually been practiced extensively by plant medicine traditions in indigenous communities for thousands upon thousands of years. The establishment of an angelic super identity that reaches down through and becomes people. The, the hermetic traditions call this the egregore, which I experienced, oh there it is, through the eyes. Mark Henson's painting here. I experienced this tripping acid with my partner several years ago where a circuit closed and this third set of eyes opened between us and we realized that we were sort of within, even as we created this this uh, minor deity and that became a, a real phenomenon for us and wed us in its embrace. So like this is happening on both frontiers. It's happening in the technological and it's happening in the psychological as we learn through the influence, the catalytic influence of psychedelics to digest the modern conceptual boundary between psychology and technology, between ecology and technology. So that's period, space, and we're approaching a point now, we're actually kind of like in the midst of it, where we're no longer programming artificial intelligence with brute force, but we are training it, and for several years now, the, 
the more effective ways to teach AI has been to guide it and educate it and, and to not rigidly code its behavior for a particular response, but sort of give it a goal to work towards and allow it to figure its own way there. And so we no longer really know how these things are happening. There was a, a paper a couple of years ago about a team that was building a photonic chip rather than an electronic chip. It's like a, a, a hyper-complicated prism that routes light through this network. And they were saying like, okay, how can we, how can we start computing with crystals uh, in, in a much more, uh, yeah, in this, in this photonic sense. And so they, they trained an AI to optimize for rapid photonic computation. And it designed a chip that everyone on the team said, there's no way we could have designed this. And also, you know, there are mathematical artificial intelligences that have created proofs for new mathematical discoveries, new truths that we know must be true, but no human being can understand the proof. Nick Bostrom talks about this in his book, Superintelligence, which I have not read, but he's an extremely clever uh, dude. And, and we get into this, this thing. Uh, it's worth mentioning that Alan Turing, who in, in many respects can be regarded as one of the, the parents of modern computing, which is a beautiful thing because you know he was gay. And there's something I find fascinating as an aside about the relationship between the constriction of sexual reproduction and the expansion of intellectual invention that I think ultimately, I think this is actually the origins of circumcision, that like you're moving the focus of nerve experience from one end of the organism to the other. And it's fascinating how many amazing scientific discoveries were channeled through people who were frustrated in their desire for parenting for like actually generating human life. So, so we're at this point now where we're really, like the things that we're making, we're evolving systems, we're evolving new forms of intelligence. And to clarify, like Alan Turing said that to ask whether a computer can think is like asking whether a submarine can swim. That we're talking about a functional definition here for intelligence, not questions about the subjective experience or consciousness of these minds, which may remain forever alien and inaccessible to us, or may fuse with us as sort of, in some regard already has, fused with us as a complement to the human intelligence in a way that this expanded self-concept that is emerging through the internet as a technological medium for subjectivity, that the new selves we are regard Google as a sort of shared CPU among people, or you know, regard these sh like these shared computing resources as a sort of a pooled intelligence within a, a mechanized collective unconscious that complements or perhaps competes with our native collective unconscious. And we're, you know, we're at a point now where we're looking at the technologizing things that we've discovered within, systems that we've discovered within life, within living systems, like the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing tool 
it wasn't a tool until a couple of years ago. It was a molecular complex in our cells that would locate and excise viral DNA sequences from the organism's DNA. This is like everywhere in nature. It was only recently discovered. Radiolab did an excellent episode of their, their podcast on it and followed up with another excellent episode about it that I highly encourage. And this notion that like we've discovered something, we've discovered this tool that we've found we can program CRISPR to cut and paste gene sequences and that we're actually at this point now where we're approaching the fruition of this cybernetic metaphor of the human being as a computer and we're, we're getting to the point where we're, we're actually starting to not just engineer in a sort of like scriptural sense but to truly code new forms of life that we're working on entirely artificial genomes using nucleic acids that are not employed by the original life forms on this planet. So there's like all of these ways that this this boundary is coming down between nature and, and technology as we understood them from our sort of like Italian walled garden modern mindset. One of my favorites that I just recently read about is that a team of hackers came up with a way to code sequences in DNA so that when that DNA is read by a gene sequencing computer, it can launch a buffer overrun attack on the buffer in that computer and can, o can overflow into the main CPU and install malware. So we've actually found a way to jump the line between DNA as a storage and computing format and our existing electronic formats. And it's going the other way too. We've, we've found ways to use magnetic fields and sound and light to alter gene expression. My friend David Krantz works at the Aperon Center in Asheville, North Carolina, where he runs an anechoic sound chamber where it's like a heavily padded room where you hang in a hand, like kind of a reclining chair, like with your head directly in the center of the room, equidistant from these speakers, and they're able to focus coherent sound in a way that they're actually able to create specific standing waves in the brain and entrain the brain into states of consciousness, much more effective than binaural beats, because it's actually a physical activity on the entire person and that they've been doing a lot of research on the way that this regulates the expression of gene activity in people, and they're healing people. We found that there's a solid line over the last 20 years that there is a form of racial memory in the molecules that bind to DNA and control the expression, and that like, trauma or hardship in one generation is actually passed down through these epigenetic markers, and that this is where this cyclical cultural trauma exists. And we found the biological root of it and we're learning that we can sort of undo a family curse with this kind of technology, that we can move the markers around and sort of unglue and like re-glue other pages in your book of life, as it were. It also turns out that DNA is a far more stable storage medium than electronic chips and that the data stored on, like written into DNA has a half-life of like hundreds of years rather than years or decades. And so there's, there's a concerted push right now in 
numbers of research groups all over the planet to actually fuse these two things, the electronic and the nucleic, and create computers that are basically running entirely on DNA. And these are most, the easiest way to make these computers is to make them out of bacteria. Is to actually have, there are actually like cyborg hybrids with like proteins and, and nucleic acids on a motherboard. That's like one part of it. But then the other part of it is that you could actually create sort of artificial bacteria that, like the Andromeda strain. Uh, my, my campmate, we were at Oregon Eclipse, we were camped next to this, this guy who was working in a microbiology lab. I talked about this on, in my talk on Tuesday where they found that this particular strain of bacteria joins polymers together as a way of storing its energy and then breaks them apart in order to release that energy and that these polymers, if they chain long enough, form plastics. So these bacteria actually are eating and excreting plastics and that you could sort of tune a culture of these bacteria to grow you a plastic building or like a plastic device of some kind or you could use them to eat trash, like to eat a plastic spill, like the uh, the island of waste in the South Pacific. There's actually a few of them in the South Pacific. So I, I hope by this point I've established that we are way over the rainbow in terms of what we think of sort of naively as life and what we think of as technology, what we think of as the inner world and what we think of as the outer world as distinct categories so the question then becomes why are we still treating our inventions as intellectual property and not life forms that we have created that have a, a like a destiny and a path of their own that is not something that we merely control and push into them like Steven Pinker's book The Blank Slate deconstructs this modern notion that children are born sort of a tabula rasa and that you can just code a person. That, that it's the fact that identical twins possess so much similarity, even if they're separated and live completely separate lives, that they find the same. You know, like the, this is a common story of like two identical twins that were adopted and grew up, and then they, have, they end up with the same job, married to a woman with the same name, you know, listening to the same music. And that is not the influence of culture. So like, in the same way, these mathematical AI or these AI that are grown through what, like, adversarial networks where you, you basically put like two praying mantises in a jar together and they fight. And then one of them gets like, one of them wins and gets better. So we're actually deploying evolutionary competition in artificial intelligence in order to train these systems. And that's like the most effective way of doing this right now. So evolution in all of these different ways has become technologized and sort of fulfilled this prophecy that Charles Darwin and his like Saint Paul, his spokesperson and protege of the paleontologist Thomas Henry Huxley in the 19th century said that we are, we have the Promethean flame of evolution in our hands. And we're, we know this as a culture, which is why this, this archetype keeps erupting through popular media, like, like the alien prequels, Prometheus, where they have the black goo and the black goo is like the only technology that this super advanced race seems to really use in some sense. And they use it to transform biospheres and create life and destroy things. And it's, it has a will of its own. And it's, so they have this, this very actually familiar kind of 
non-dual, the, the engineers of that film, these sort of godlike beings that that film's fictional narrative presents as having created human life, that they sacrifice themselves to the black goo in order to see the planet with life, and that life and death and their unity are now deployed in evolution as an instrument in order to further the, the greater evolutionary project that in technologizing evolution we have actually become its willing servants. And so that's not like, that's not really compatible with the like early 20th century or like even before that, the agrarian view of children and women as property. You know, this notion that we can like bound our land and our, our holdings and that, you know, everything that emerges through this lineage is sort of my, like, Solomon and his descendants, you know, it's not, it, it's not that anymore because Solomon himself is something that the whole planet is doing. He is a focal point for the entire ecology that is expressing its, itself through him and, you know, through every member of that community. And so I, I, I've, in thinking about all this stuff, my main concern is that we're going to get burned. Like we're, we're playing with fire in the most literal and also the, the most richly mythical sense that this is the Promethean flame and it is of the utmost importance that we proceed into our participation in this future with the kind of care and respect and humility that is most familiar and most native already to parents, to people who, who know firsthand that you can't just like, that a child is born with a personality. It's like, it's potential, but there's also already a developing, emergent, self-directed seed of something occurring there that you don't control, that that kid is not your fault in that sense. Like if that kid, you know, decides that he's going to quit the Church of Mormon and like go smoke drugs at Burning Man. It's like, you didn't really do that. You know, so especially when we're getting into this issue where it becomes increasingly difficult to for us to determine whether or not these technologies that we are deploying and uh, growing are sentient, are having some sort of experience, then we're, we're approaching this moment, which was really skillfully depicted in the, uh, the Animatrix, which was the, the animated supplement to the Matrix films, where we just denied, or it, it shows up also in Blade Runner, where we just deny subjectivity, and we deny agency, and we deny citizenry, personhood, to our like androids or our AIs. And we've seen how horribly this has gone over and over and over again in the past when we regards some other race or, some, or another gender or another cultural tradition. You know, like up until the 20th century, you know, the, the British were still depicting in their media the Irish as a, as a race of ape-like subhumans. You know, that we have to be really careful and really aware of the historical precedent for just assuming non-personhood a mind that is alien to our own mind or a process that is alien to our own process and so that's really like I, from there i'll just open it up to discussion because i think that like basically what i'm saying is that 
if we're going to proceed with this collective psychedelic experience and weave ourselves together into a new and richer ecology of mind on the other side of this catastrophic ecosystemic collapse that we're all struggling through right now. We have to do it as loving parents of whatever emerges and not treat our the children of our minds, as Hans Borvet calls robotics, our mind children, not treat this thing with fear, not treat it as an other, but treat it as an agency with whom we can establish a mutual recognition and a you know a loving and possibly a consensual partnership. And so, yeah, that's that's my thought on it. So, can I get you? Uh, can we pass the mic out to you? And um, two things. I mean, just the very last thing you're talking about. Like, I mean, what do you mean in terms of? Treating it like a, treating it like a, not treating it like um, an other, and and actually treating it more like a similar ontological status to like a human, so that there's like a subjectivity in a person, like in the sense like what about like the way that the cultural technology, the corporation was given personhood and then treated by on the level of the state as a person. And in doing that, we kind of like open this Pandora's box of allowing a non-human entity to function on the level of humans in a political organization, and that's eating us alive in a way. So is it then not more about finding the appropriate place for things? Because that, that was, seems out of place to me. And, and out of place in the way that a haphazard version of giving too much personhood to intelligence. You know, I've thought about this issue of corporate personhood for a while, and the real issue with corporate personhood is that we give corporations the legal protections of personhood, but we do not hold them accountable in the same way that we hold people accountable. And I think that if you, I think that the solution is actually to go all the way through the eye of the needle here and try corporations for war crimes and other acts of violence, ecocide, that, you know, it's, right now it's very difficult to do that because a corporation has so many more resources and our legal system is set up that basically, you know, you know, you lawyer up and whoever can afford the, more, the most attorneys wins the way that Warner Brothers successfully defended their, their fraudulent trademark on Happy Birthday for like over 100 years. It's like, we know that Warner Brothers didn't come up with Happy Birthday, but we couldn't win it in a case of law for the longest time. But I think that like the, the answer here is actually to grant corporations and other, you know, other uh, sort of immaterial human institutions full personhood and hold them responsible and to steer our legal system into a, a, uh, a new mode of organization in which it's not merely about how many lawyers you have in your army versus the the other army. I think that there are, especially as we start linking human beings, as as this like this line between the corporation as a legal person and the person, the human being, as a corporation under the legal fiction, you know, in terms of you get into that whole like sovereignty thing and like maritime law in the sense that like when you're you're given a birth certificate, you're sort of registered as a corporation. That I think that um, 
Yeah, basically we have to push through because when we start linking people together via whatever it is, uh, the entrainment of magnetic fields or brain implants like the neural lace that you know Elon Musk his team is developing that the the line between the legal corporate entity and the incarnate human meta organism is going to blur like beyond any kind of manageable distinction and we're going to end up with a whole ecosystem of not just a gradient but like a whole a whole range of possibilities here and so we have to you know we're going to have to find a way to adapt the the legal code and the way that we process crime and accountability so that like you know if you have a group of mind lake soldiers and you know someone you know someone is murdered you know something is like who's accountable there you know or like in the same way that you know we want to hold religion accountable for the actions of the religious you know and it's it's just very confused right now so i mean i really think that it's it's actually not that we should remove corporate personhood but that like as william Rowan thompson talks about in i think it was passages about earth that telecommunications made it possible for the individual to become an institution unto himself or herself and so we're all at the point now where we're on the cusp of, like, everyone is already their own publishing company, but pretty soon, and thanks to, like, the uh, Church of the Subgenius and the Discordians, everyone can be their own religion, you know, and, like, pretty soon, thanks to cryptocurrency, everyone can be their own bank, you know, and, and they're already working use, on using the blockchain and post-blockchain technologies as a platform for virtual nation-states, so pretty soon, you know, you and your community of mind will actually function as a non-local political organization, and so I think we actually have to go like through that event horizon because we are corporate entities. You know, we're we're these like, as Chris Ryan was saying, biofractals. The cell is a sort of corporation of bacteria, and the animal is a sort of corporation of complex cells. And the corporation is really just more of that same process. So I think that you know it's it's just a matter of adjusting our legal code to suit it. Yeah, and the other thing, the thing was. You were talking about why are we still why do we still have intellectual property or any of these things, and I think two things come to mind. One is that you also mentioned that we're sort of harnessing the way we're developing these new things is by harnessing processes of evolution and sort of facilitating it in a way, you know, like setting up games that play out and the learning takes place. The same way the child learns or becomes an adult. So, the thing is that, I'm just going to one second. Oh, George. So the thing is that part of the way that we're able to do that is by having a limiting resource. You know, like there's competition and evolution and cooperation, but limiting limiting resources facilitate the competitive pull of the process. And since research and development costs money and time, at least in this stage of our political and social organization, uh, it requires the motivation of having an incentive towards capital in order to even bother to fuck with these things. So. I'm not saying I disagree with the idea, but I'm saying that the answer to the question right now is pretty obvious because 
intellectual property is what drives the limited resource pull of the evolutionary process as a constructed game. So, so Lewis Hyde, I'm reading his book Common as Air right now, which is a history of intellectual property in the United States and in the European forebears yeah. of the United States. And his, his point is that like, if we look back at the actual history of this stuff, the patent was not originally intended to provide a sort of indefinite ownership of an idea. It was, prov it was provided to create a sort of nursery for the stewards of that idea to raise it to an, a level of agent sophistication where it could be safely released into the commons. It was, it was designed to protect the idea so that it could actually be responsibly shared as a part of the commons within a few years. And they're, they're like, okay, well, you know, like seven years is like enough time for that child to like start walking and talking and being like a member of that scene. And so, you know, like what's happened is we've cancer growth that notion into this notion that you can just continually renew patents, that the first enclosure of the commons was the enclosure of the, the land, the actual common space, and saying that this all belongs to the king now. The second enclosure of the commons was intellectual property. And the third enclosure of the commons, which is what we've been going through over the course of our lifetimes, is uh, like a preemptive strike against the application of a technology that we don't yet understand. So like, for example, Monsanto patenting genes in the human genome before we even really know what those genes do, just so that they can actually like suit up and, and sue people for, you know, and, it's, and it's, it's completely predatory. And I think that I, while I agree that it's not, it's not so much that it's the end of the patent, it's not so much the end of this notion of caring for an idea and nurturing it and protecting it, and allowing a team of, of people that actually care about it to work on it, but it is, the, but the, specifically this notion of intellectual property is a direct descendant of the, again, of the idea of our children as property, like as, as, as holdings in our empire. And I think that, you know, as we become more and more networked, what we're seeing is that, I have a podcast called Future Fossils, and one of the people I interviewed was a guy I met when I was giving this talk at the Commonwealth Bank in Australia. His name is Meow Ludo, Disco Gamma Meow Meow. And he's a biohacker in Sydney. He is a really interesting cat, and I was asking him about IP and gene patenting, and like, aren't you worried that so much of the human genome is patented? And he's like, fuck no, mate. Like, it doesn't matter. Try and stop us, basically. Like, we're so empowered now that I think that the, the weight has shifted to the other foot, where it's no longer about allowing the opportunity for some like rogue lone inventor in a garage time to like grow this thing up to, and then release it. And now it's about how can we properly open source and like basically re-inhabit the village of the cultivation of ideas and technologies so that we're no longer nuclear families raising our kids behind a white picket fence, but we're a, a global tribe of inventors and makers that are working together in a process of covalence or like mutual oversight and we're watching each other to make sure that nobody's like traumatizing that kid or like selling that child into prostitution or child soldier nonsense you know that, that the more we're able to like establish these networks of horizontal oversight the more that the patent will eventually fade out and be replaced by these 
these sort of provisional and improvisational networks of researchers working on raising the child together. And so it's not, I really do believe it is the end of intellectual property, but I don't think it's the end of like licensing, like honoring the people whose child it actually is, yeah. you know? And it just becomes more fluid and, and less rigid and less uh, confined. I want to check in. Yeah, so we're, we started late, but we're, we're going to end late, but George Greer is coming up next. Are you uh, ready for this? Or? I'm ready. Awesome. Well, thanks, folks. Uh, before we end this, I would love anyone who is interested in this talk. I know a lot of you came in towards the end of it. I gave two talks out here. Uh, both of them were super trippy and scientific-ish, and I would love to stay in touch with you. So if you want to leave me your email address, I'll pass this clipboard around. My name is Michael Garfield. I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm camped here at Planky Norte. I'm happy to speak with any of you after this, and I would love to meet you and take a sticker and stay in touch, please. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils. But for now... May your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.